the passage that Shelton read, contains one of Paul's sort of greatest hits. It's one that is very familiar. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And just about every time that Paul mentions the cross, he links it with the terminology of knowing, of changing of one's mind, of transformation, and of seeing something differently. How through the cross, and only through the cross, can you know what is really true? Can you see the world accurately? Now, during an eye exam, the optometrist asks you to to take off your glasses and identify the letters of this chart that's on the wall that's just far enough away. And if you're like me, you can see the, the big E at the top, and that's just about it. Now, why is it always an E? I don't understand that. If you know it's an E, then it's not much of a challenge uh, to be able to tell what it is. But no matter how much I squint, at least, you can't see all of the letters on the chart. But then she swings this big Darth Vader mask in front of you, and he begins to cl- click a few things and change some things, and then suddenly these blobs of, of gray that were on this eye chart are now legible letters. They're clear, and you can see them. For Paul, Jesus Christ crucified is shorthand for the event that acts as an interpretive lens for everything else. Christ crucified is not the optometrist chart, but it's the lens between. It's the lens through which you see. And for Paul, it's the lens through which he sees the world. And it reveals that the wisdom of this present world is so much blur, or to use an auditory term, it's static. Christ crucified is not what Paul sees, first of all, but it's how Paul sees. Now, when he came to Corinth, and we talked last week that he had planted this church probably just a few years before, and he talked about them, the people of Corinth, that not many of them were impressive. Not many of them were of noble birth that had a famous name. Not many of them were powerful or influential. And he says very, at the very beginning of this chapter, so it was with me, that is Paul. He's not a flashy guy. He's not an impressive guy. And we learn in 2 Corinthians that people say about Paul, well, he's a, he's a pretty good writer, but he looks funny, and he doesn't speak so well. So is this the guy that you want planning a church in the key city of Corinth? He didn't come making a sales pitch, he is telling us. He didn't trick the people of Corinth. He didn't manipulate them, and it wouldn't have mattered if he had tried because he's not very good at it. The Corinthians were infatuated with fancy rhetoric, with flowery speech, and people who could debate in the public square, argumentation. But Paul says, I gave you Christ crucified. Far from impressing you, I focused on the very thing that is most despised, the very thing that is most difficult about Christianity. That was what he led with. Crucifixion was not something that was talked about in polite company. This was something that was grotesque, something that was repulsive. And so the idea that God intervened in the world to save the world through a crucified rabbi outside of the rebel city of Jerusalem would be preposterous 
to Greeks in Corinth. On the cross, you don't see God acting like how God should act according to the people in Corinth. And this is what Paul leads with. This is what all entrepreneurs do, right? Let's figure out what our target audience is most repulsed by, and let's try to market to that. Let's try to create a product that will appeal to that. And let's also save money on the pitchman who's 6'4 with great abs and a tan. Instead, let's use Bob from accounting who walks funny and doesn't talk so good. That's how we're going to plant this church in Corinth. Paul says you guys are infatuated with impressive people, with worldly wisdom, with argumentation. And so I gave you the very opposite. I gave you Christ crucified. So maybe first of all, we should ask, what is our worldly wisdom? What are we so impressed by that it hinders us from seeing the gospel rightly? That it's a corrective lens in the other way that brings things out of focus? Well, in Corinth, they were impressed, as I said, some would say obsessed, with self-presentation, with image. And it's pretty much the same in our day as well. So becoming a Christian is not going to help your image. It's not going to help you win friends and influence people. Far from having it all together, it says that you're incapable of mastering life. And so the jig is up. It's out in the open. You don't have it all together. But if that's your process, if that's your posture, it is trying to maintain this image that you've got it all together, that you can master life on your own. The gospel is not going to help that. They were also proud to be Greeks, proud to be Corinthians. So what about our American exceptionalism? What about our nationalistic hubris and pride? Is that a lens that somehow slightly obscures the potency and the message of the gospel? You also saw in Corinth these people dividing over different theological gurus, different people and schools of thought, Apollos, Cephas, Paul. What about our denominational chauvinism that says we, our people, we have it all nailed down and everyone else should learn from us? Could we use that to insulate us from the critique of the cross? Well, what is this message itself? What is his message of the cross, of Jesus Christ crucified? What is this inarticulate guy who tells them he was actually trembling with fear when he came to Corinth? What does he tell them about, about the cross? Well, above, I talked about that it is a way of seeing. And it's a way of seeing God's plan, his revelation of God's plan for the world. We're not talking, first of all, here in the cross about blood atonement or substitution or forgiveness. What he's talking about here is an announcement of Jesus' death as an apocalyptic event of God intervening into the history of the world to put an end to the old age and to begin a new age entirely. And the cross, as a way to do that, is utter foolishness to people who love power 
and love prestige and love big things and worship gods who have big muscles. You see, the Greek gods were strong and powerful and beautiful. You don't want to get on their bad side, but if you're doubting yourself, you could point to them and say, well, that's my God. Look how powerful He is. And it's the same reason that we argue as kids on the playground, whose dad is tougher, right? My dad could beat up your dad. It's because we want to feel good about ourselves. It makes us feel powerful. It's why guys buy Rottweilers and sports cars when they're 50. So we can point to that and we can feel like something. Edward Shalito said in the, at the end of World War I when guys were coming back wounded and bruised and having lost limbs, and he said, the other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. God's wisdom is a cross. His plan to rescue the world is His own crucifixion. Verse 7, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden. None of the rulers of this age understood it because they were about power and position and prestige. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Worldly wisdom, wisdom that comes only from within the system, worldly seeing is so skewed and so threatened that it kills God's messenger of salvation. If this was a meme, it would be someone with a face palm, right? How could this possibly happen? What were they thinking? And how easy it is to externalize this, right? How could they kill Jesus? But do you remember last week, if you were here, Paul told us that Jesus is our righteousness. He's our holiness. He's our redemption. That the only way that anyone gets in is through the cross of Jesus. It was because Jesus intervened, and only because He intervened, that you are redeemed, that you have a place in the kingdom. And if you get it, it's grace. Because notice what Paul said, no eye has seen this, no ear has heard this, no mind has conceived. This is not something that you would have just puzzled through and figured out. Inductive logic would have gotten you down to the conclusion that I can get to God through Jesus on the cross. These are things, verse 10, that says God has revealed to us by His Spirit. And what does this say about us? Christ crucified. It's a perfect passive uh, verb, which means that something has been done which continues to be in effect. In other words, Jesus continues to have His scars The resurrection wasn't a magic trick that erased the history of Jesus. No, he emerged with scars. He emerged with a history, with a past of pain. And he continues to be marked by death. Crucifixion is not done simply to get to the resurrection. You need both. You need the crucifixion 
To know Jesus is to know him as the crucified one. To know God is to know a God who limps. In a world of superficial gladness, in a world of escapism, in a world seeking false comfort, in a world where to fix your problems you simply need to buy something. Happiness is one purchase away. Shouldn't we say, finally, a message that doesn't shade the truth any longer? A message that tells the truth about who we really are. It's not a comforting message straight out, but for those of us who are sick and tired of deceit and diversion and constant self-PR and promotion, the cross tells the truth that we are not who we want to be and we're not who God wants to be, but He loves us anyway. It's strangely comforting. And in our honest moments, in fact, in our mature moments, don't we want the truth to come out? Don't we want to get it off our chest that the person we pretend to be is actually not real? Once we can be honest about who we are, once we can be honest about what the cross says about us, once we can accept that truth that the Lord of glory died to absorb our sin, then we're ready for another part. And this is where it really gets good. Did you catch verse 7? We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden by God, destined for our glory. Before time began, what Paul is saying is that God has this hidden plan, this incredibly powerful plan that's hard to see, but it was for your good and for your glory. This should stop us in our tracks if we really recognize what Paul is saying here, that God coming to die on a criminal's cross was for your and my glory. No God dies for his subjects. You get to God by your sacrifice, not his, but in Christianity, it's exactly the opposite. God sacrifices himself to get to you. The one guiding divine destiny, human destiny with divine freedom, you see, he doesn't choose autonomy and comfort for himself. He doesn't observe the world at safe distance. He doesn't come first with demands forcing subjugation. He chooses relationship. He chooses to be radically involved with his creation. He chooses the cross on your and my behalf. And therefore, friends, you get a crown of glory while he gets a crown of thorns. Who sees this? Who gets this? If it's foolishness, foolishness, if it's weakness, if it's hard to see, how do we see it? Well, Paul says in order to see it, you have to be mature. Or to put it another way, it's only the mature who see it. And I don't think he means here more accomplished Christians. That is levels of maturity and that some people are higher on the ladder than some others. Instead, what he's talking about is people who see, 
mature people see rightly. These are people who live according to the new age instead of the old. I love reading magazines and articles that seem to kind of have an insight into things that I wouldn't notice otherwise, that notice trends and transitions that most people don't see. One of the magazines that does that for me is The Atlantic. Almost every month there's something, a couple of articles that are just so prescient and so important and so like make such big discoveries where I think I would have never noticed that before. And there are these writers and commentators who seem to have just preternatural insight to what's really going on in the world. The Malcolm Gladwells, the, the guys who do the Freakonomics podcast, if you've read that or, or listened to that. Michael Lewis and the people that he writes about, like those he wrote about in the book The Big Short. These guys and ladies were shorting the housing market when everyone else was making a once-in-a-lifetime money, amount of money. But the truth, however, was that all that wealth was imaginary. It was false, and these people were leveraged to their teeth. It was foolishness. It was preposterous to short the housing market, and people laughed at them and thought they were crazy. But those who were brave enough to short the housing market saw something that others either couldn't or wouldn't. The ones that were being laughed at were living in the world as it actually was, or better said, as it was actually becoming. Being mature is about learning to see the world as it actually is and learning to see and imagine what the world will be as God finally intervenes and remakes it as we read about in Isaiah. But here's the good news, friends, is that we don't have to be geniuses like Gladwell or Michael Lewis or the people that were shorting the housing market. We don't have to be smart enough to put it all together. We don't have to solve the mystery or put together the puzzle. Verse 7, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, but God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. You don't have to be a genius to put together the puzzle. You just have to be open to seeing. You have to be open to recognizing that we are not characters who are in the middle of the novel waiting for the mystery to be solved, but we are characters in the novel with the narrator's perspective, with the writer's perspective, and we already know the end of the story. We already know how the mystery is finally solved. The ending has been made, made plain. It has been revealed. You simply need the right lenses to see it. You need the gospel which says the world is a place of incredible beauty and yet undeniable brokenness. That the pain and the sadness and the death that exists in our world tells us that our deepest hopes will never be met here. They will all be left unfulfilled if this world is all there is. And yet, at the same time, 
the incredible delights and incredible joys and incredible love are only a hint of what's coming and what the world is becoming. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has even conceived of, these are the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. George Martin, I quoted in your bulletin, says this about fantasy. It is silver and scarlet, indigo and azure, obsidian veined with gold and lapis lazuli. Reality is plywood and plastic, done up in mud brown and olive drab. Fantasy taste of habaneros and honey, cinnamon and cloves, rare red meat and wines as sweet as summer. Reality is beans and tofu. No offense to the vegetarians in this room. Reality is the strip malls of Burbank, the smokestacks of Cleveland, Cleveland, a parking garage in Newark. Fantasy is the towers of Minas Tirith, the ancient stones of Gormenghast, the halls of Camelot. Fantasy flies on the wings of Icarus, reality on Southwest Airlines. Why do we... Why do our dreams become so much smaller when they finally come true? Wow, there's a lot in that one sentence. He says, we read fantasy to find the colors again. Friends, what we have to recognize is that the church is not known for helping the world see the colors again. Could we? Could we become, at least in this place, a church that helps our neighbors and our friends see the colors again and see what the world is becoming and will become? Could we dream dreams for the world that the world doesn't know it should be dreaming? First of all, we have to see the colors. We have to be a community that lives by the gospel, that celebrates the goodness of what life offers, but doesn't worship it. A community that's radically unpossessed by narratives of power and dominance and control. A community that's ultimately dissatisfied with salvation strategies that come from within the system. And instead, we're constantly talking about the kingdom and eternal life as if it actually exists now and has entered into our world. Leslie Newbigin said the best apologetic for the gospel is a community that believes it. The cross, friends, is at the center of the gospel. It reveals the character. It reveals the face of God. It is the lens through which we see him and we see his world. There was a news story in conclusion of a baby whose eyesight was so bad that he had never seen his mom. He could hear his mom, he could feel his mom, he could touch his mom, maybe smell his mom. We don't know. It was a very small baby. But it could only see blobs of color. But then the doctor brings in this special pair of glasses, and it was this flexible kind that you see on kids on the playground and so forth that looked like goggles. And the mom was sitting in front of the baby about this far away, and as soon as the doctor pulls the lenses over the baby's eyes, his whole face just lights up. His world has 
been just blurry colors. It now comes into focus. And more than that, for the first time, he can see the face of his mom. And he knows that all of that warmth and all of that love and all of that color and beauty actually has a face that he can be in relationship with. The cross is the lens through which we see the world rightly. And more importantly than that, it's how we see the face of God for the first time. Through the cross, we see his radical grace and his fanatical love, and we see in him a person that wants relationship with us and is madly in love with us. Let's believe that this morning and this week. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that we would stop playing games, that we would be honest with who we are, that we would be about who we are, that we would be honest about how bad we need you and therefore be ushered into an entirely new world, a new dimension of being human, a new way of relating to one another and relating to you. Lord, I pray that it would be through the lens of the cross that we would see the darkness of our world, that we would see the sinfulness of our own selves, that it took the death of your own son to bring us into the kingdom. And yet we would also see the beauty of a God coming down to be with us and for us and to die for us, and therefore we would rejoice. We pray as we come to confession that that would become more and more true and real to us and that we would feed and feast upon it as we come to communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.